and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. This is Eric Arneson with yet another solo episode. We've... I know that for regular listeners, it doesn't seem like we've been having very much of a break, but uh, but we are, tend to record our episodes in little chunks and then kind of release them slowly over time. So uh, you're listening to episodes we recorded a couple months ago, and we haven't recorded anything in a while. This is the first thing we've recorded in a while. I just got a portable Lanolier microphone, which is this thing that I'm recording in right now. I'm hoping that it will cut down on our need to use multiple recorders when we do live recordings, and um, we'll find out. It is boiling hot in Portland today. I've got a fan running in the background. You can probably hear it. And I've got a few things I want to talk about. First of all, tomorrow, the day after I record this, is the, the, the last two episodes of the new season of Twin Peaks are airing, and I'm really excited what's up with all right so cooper's back if you uh, hold on now if you've been watching twin peaks but you're not up to episode 16 yet then then stop listening or skip ahead a few minutes or something but here are some spoilers agent cooper is back finally episode 16 now we had a couple episodes of agent cooper right at the beginning then he did the whole body swap with dougie jones um, instead of with Evil Cooper or Mr. C, whatever we're supposed to call him. And now Cooper's finally back, and all of the weird, goofy shit that he's been up to with Dougie, or as Dougie, are, uh, like, all of that stuff is sort of, like, heaping together to aid him. So you've got Belushi and What's-His-Face as the as the Las Vegas casino owners who are just ready to help him because of all the good he's done. You've got his relationship with Janie E and Sonny John, which is, which seems to be really solid. Uh, my suspicion is that the, the seed and the hair that he gave to Mike, the one-armed man, that's to grow a new Dougie clone to go take care of Janie E so that Cooper doesn't have to worry about it later on. And everything is kind of coming to a head. Diane was fake all along. Was there ever a Diane? Was Diane a, a real person? Did Diane exist before the Blue Rose Division encountered the Black Lodge stuff? Or or what? Like, was Diane ever real? We don't know. I'm really excited about that, though, because that was just such a great scene where she's, like, going through this thing and describing her 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 screwed-up rape. And, and then all of a sudden she's like, I'm not myself. I'm not myself. And she pulls out the gun, and you don't really get an idea. I I think that she was going to shoot herself, but I mean, she was not real all along. And then what about the, the redheaded dude in the tree with Donna's little sister? Why? Uh, there's so many questions. I've got ideas like one of them is that David Lynch is tying up all of these loose ends by just having really dramatic things happen. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people on social media asking for a season four. I hope that we don't need a season four. Uh, not that I don't want to see more Twin Peaks, but I have a lot of faith in David Lynch as an artist, and I think that he can wrap everything up really satisfactorily and give us like a complete story finally, where he's where we're gonna get because so much so much has been revealed in this season about how the Twin Peaks universe works and how the different lodges work together and all of that crap. So I've been if you have been listening to the episodes you know that one of the things that i've been sort of 
interested in getting started on is is like planetary magic stuff. Um, I've been referred I referred to it a few times as sort of like Ficino style planetary magic. But in the meantime, I was given uh, Frater uh, Ashen Chasson's book, um, Gateways Through Light and Shadow, which I just finished reading. And I have worked through, I've been reading through a number of uh, grimoires that have recently come into my possession. Um, nothing unusual or nothing like hard to get necessarily, except... Uh, I guess gateways through light and shadow is kind of hard to get, but, um, and I have been using some crystal ball scrying methods, but now that I'm sort of getting into what other people are doing, I'm, I'm starting to refine my approach a little bit. Uh, so what I end up with might be a little more akin to, uh, so I just finished, or I finished a while ago reading Rufus Opus's book, The Seven Spheres. So I'm going to adapt some of his methods. Uh, it's not going to be the same, you know. Uh, I've been a magician for like a zillion years, or maybe like 17 years, 18 years. So I've got my own background and approach to things that uh, will definitely change my approach and I've been doing things like getting well you know I have a planetary smart altar which is a electrical device uh, I guess it's a thing that I invented uh, the planetary smart altar is a gesture activated uh, microcontroller attached to my altar that lights up according to the current planetary days and hours and the prototype that I put together was put together mostly with like cardboard and tape and it fell apart. So I've put it together again using cardboard and tape and staples. Um, I think it seems to be pretty robust. It also gave me an excuse to clean my altar. I don't know how many of you have this problem, but like your altar needs to be cleaned. You know, you're burning incense on it. You're burning candles on it. There's always wax everywhere. There's things that get added and taken away and it gets dusty and it gets covered in incense ash and all this sort of stuff uh i make my own um altar covers for it because i also like to sew and those are always sort of getting like holes in them from burning bits and you know wax stains and so i clean my altar i got everything all nice and polished up i'm gonna start on a new round of those sorts of magical operations uh since I don't do a very good job reporting back on this podcast, uh, who knows what will be next, but that will be something interesting. Um, oh, and so I was listening to Charm the Water on episode 54 of Charm the Water. Aaron David, who's the host, uh, give a shout out, shout out to our podcast. So Aaron, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you should go listen to Charm the Water. It's a really fascinating podcast. Aaron is a um, ceremonial magician going through some initiatory issues and initiatory things that are uh, involve self-initiation. And then it sounds like he's also going to be pursuing initiation into a magical order soon. And his, uh, his podcast is very autobiographical and kind of like a magical diary slash journal of his life it's a really fascinating thing to listen to he really he's got a totally different approach than i do he's he's super honest and open about everything and in the episode where he does a shout out he and his wife or girlfriend or partner whoever kelly 
share some of their dreams. So I thought in honor of that, I would share one of my dreams. You know, I've been a magician for a long time. I've been practicing ceremonial magic and involved in the occult for decades. And I feel like one of the things that it does is it introduces a lot of stuff into your subconscious or your whatever and gives you a lot of bizarre dreams. So I'm going to share one of those dreams right now. This I just had this dream last night. I don't remember the details exactly, but it was something like this. I was by the side of a river out in the wilderness, and I was with some people. And the people I was with, their identities, um, I don't remember. All I know is that they were very concerned that I was going to jump into the water and drown or something of that nature. Uh, and I was certain that I wouldn't. Suddenly, on the other side of the river, Bill Clinton shows up. And it's not modern-day Bill Clinton, but, like, 1990s Bill Clinton. You know, the super charismatic, I'm running for president Bill Clinton. He shows up, and he's just wearing, like, boxer shorts or maybe swim trunks, something of that nature. And he crosses the river. Now, this river is deep and moving fast and kind of terrifying. And he crosses it in a way where it looks like he's maybe stepping on rocks or rocks that are just below the surface of the water. And he just skips across, like, long strides, skips across, easy as pie. And when he does it, I look at it and I'm like, oh, I could totally cross the river. So I cross the river back. And this leads to this sort of like dance that I do along the river where I cross the river back and forth and um, up river a ways there's a waterfall and I cross the river just below the waterfall and sort of easily climb up the rocks like some sort of Jackie Chan parkour adept right up the rocks. Um, I don't know what it means, except that in my dream world, 1990s Bill Clinton taught me how to walk on water. Again, Aaron David, thank you for the shout out. Super appreciate that. One more thing that I want to talk about before I wrap up this solo episode. I saw the solar eclipse. Um, I live in Oregon, as you all know, and I had the incredible fortune of seeing the solar eclipse right in the center of the path of totality. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my adventure. This was an adventure, a part of my life that was far more like science nerd filled than occult nerd filled. And that's, uh, that's something that I enjoy a lot. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I really enjoy amateur astronomy, but I'm like super, super amateur to the point where I've got a telescope, but it costs like 20 bucks and it's a piece of crap. Um, but I love gazing at the stars. I use apps to like try to figure out which star is which. I follow the planets as they move across the sky. I sometimes will wake up super early in the morning if like Venus is like the morning star and I'll go out on my porch and I'll drink tea and I will watch Venus. Um, it usually, especially during certain parts of the summer, Venus rises right in the cracks between apartment buildings near my, near my place. And it's just so wonderful to watch. So I had these, so I've been really excited about the, the, the solar eclipse. And I went and saw a lecture by uh, Ethan Siegel, who is Portland's local astrophysicist, celebrity astrophysicist. I don't know. He writes for Forbes. He's got a podcast of his own called Starts With a Bang. He is, like myself, a man of hirsute pursuits. He's got this incredible mustache, huge beard, total character. Like he... When I saw him at this lecture, he was wearing a kilt, uh, a black kilt that was that had the planets painted on it, like hand painted on it. It was awesome. I don't have to really tell you where Uranus was. 
on his kilt, I suspect. You could guess. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And he talked about all this stuff. And one of the things that I had talked to Ethan about this before, like I had gotten a hold of him on Facebook and said, uh, why can't I ever see Mercury? He gave a great explanation, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, but the, the gist of it was it just has to do with my latitude. Like when you live this far north of the equator, um, you just don't get a chance to see Mercury. He's like, but Eric, you're in luck. Uh, during the full eclipse, during the full solar eclipse, you should get to see Mercury. This was a very exciting bit of information for me. So I had a goal during the solar eclipse. I really wanted to see Mercury. So let's get to the eclipse itself. Like how did the camping go? So I got a, a hold of a couple super dear friends of mine. We made some camping cl- plans and started working on it. It was so difficult. Like stuff started selling out so early. I feel like we were looking at things probably about six months out and it was still, you know, they were kind enough to like sit on the websites and hit refresh over and over and over again until they get a campsite reservation. It was not easy. And so we got a reservation we were really happy with. And we go as the day approaches, uh, one of my friends, his parents decided that they were going to come down for the eclipse and they came down and went to and, and staked out a campsite for us. And this campsite was at Magoon Lake, which was, which is just outside of John Day, Oregon in the Malheur National Forest. And it's about a five and a half hour ride from Portland. It's a long, it's a long drive. And we're just like so nervous about traffic. There's so much news about how, you know, millions of people are going to see the eclipse. Traffic in Oregon is going to be worse than it's ever been, blah, 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 blah. So the Friday before the eclipse, we pack up all our camping gear and we get out of here. I think we managed to leave town at like 8.30 a.m. and experience no traffic. There was no traffic on the way to the to our campsite. Uh, we got there in record time, even with my buddy driving like a grandma. He was not a very, he's not a very fast driver. Uh, we didn't run into any traffic problems. Um, the camping was just delightful. I saw beavers. Magoon Lake is a really cool campsite. So if you're an Oregon person and you like to camp, I would recommend Magoon Lake. Uh, there's almost certainly a good chance of seeing beavers in the summer, uh, muskrats, belted kingfishers, hairy woodpeckers, some stellar jays. That's not very exciting. Stellar jays are there. Uh, lots of amazing stuff. Like the, the wildlife was lovely. There were some great hiking trails and we had a spot, uh, all scoped out on top of a mountain to watch the eclipse from. So we could look to the West and see the approaching shadow. So we had a clear shot of the sky. So we should, we would have had a clear shot of Mercury and we timed our trek up there at like 45 minutes. We're like, okay, we'll give ourselves an hour to get to the top. So Monday morning, the morning of the eclipse, we woke up super early. We ate all of our breakfasts and drank coffee and all this kind of stuff. And we left our campsite at 7.30 a.m., I believe, maybe 7 o'clock a.m. The eclipse uh, special effects weren't going to start until between 8.30 and 9, with the full eclipse kicking in at about 10.20. So we booked it up there. And we, oh, and, but let me rewind a little bit because one of the things that happened was at the campsite, um, my, my buddy's friends had met this other couple, or my, my buddy's parents had met this other couple, one of whom is a retired rocket scientist who was so fun to talk to. He was just like a brilliant science nerd. The retired rocket scientist 
his he's now really into photography his name is richard white and his um photography company is scenic globe photography he had everything all plotted out everything all planned out he knew exactly where he wanted to go to see the eclipse he knew exactly what time he wanted to be up there he had stuff to observe he had apps on his phone like we were so prepared we raced up the mountain in record time like uh altogether we had a party of about nine people who were going to the spot and we hiked up there we had planned out we had scheduled a, an hour for the hike and got up there in half an hour and we were so early we all just sat around and somebody had brought a camp stove and we had filtered water so we made tea and coffee and we drank tea and coffee and ate hiking snacks on the top of this hill i guess it was a short mountain waiting for the eclipse and it just it was so fascinating like we had such an array of curious interested people up there and watching it together was really fun totality was unlike anything i've ever seen it got dark it was probably about as dark as a night with a full moon all around us every horizon had a sunset it looked like it was just a sunset everywhere the moon ate the sun it was a black circle with this silver halo around it everything got cold and quiet animals went away we all nine of us were so excited we like hooted and howled it reminded me of i'd been thinking about this all weekend actually before the eclipse happened but nate had told me that nate neff that the ginger gandalf had told me that when the moon eats the sun you have to howl at it to scare skull the um giant sky wolf from norse mythology that's trying to swallow the sun because skull needs to vomit the sun back up for the eclipse stand uh which i thought was you know that's charming and i didn't tell anybody but we all made so much noise that it was almost certainly the equivalent of howling at the moon it was it was just incredible it was not as it was not the effect that i expected um stars came out but not a ton of them people got really excited about being able to see venus which i don't you know i mean that's cool we saw venus but you get to see venus at dawn if you want to or dusk if it's the right time of the year you know seeing venus isn't that exciting uh mercury and mars which are both fairly close to the sun that part of the sky didn't get dark enough so i couldn't see mercury and i couldn't see regulus which was a star that was like almost conjunct with the sun in the sky but the effect like just how it felt like there was a a feeling that is undescribable you know you if you haven't seen a full solar eclipse, even if you were like a Portlander or somebody in Oregon who didn't get in the path of totality, you 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 should do that. You should definitely do that. So I'm going to go to the next one for sure. Um, yeah, man. So that was the solar eclipse. If you missed it, you're a fool. But I still love you. You'll have another chance. Don't worry. Um, oh, yeah. What else? I do have one other thing. This is kind of exciting, especially if you're a Freemason. Remember, this isn't a Masonic podcast. This is my first mention of Freemasonry today, or at least during this podcast. I'm sure I talked about Freemasonry at brunch. But on October 21st is the first uh, esotericism. What is it called? I think the name of it is the 
conference on esotericism and Freemasonry. It's taking place in Seattle, Washington, October 21st. It is uh, sponsored by Esoterica Lodge number 316 in Seattle, Washington. That's our sister lodge. And the, there's a number of uh, interesting looking speakers, including me. I'm going to be giving a lecture on the art of memory. And I would love to see some of our listeners there. This is a... We will be recording some episodes that weekend. I'm going to be up visiting Maddie Anthony, uh, one of the other hosts. And we're going to brew a magical beer. We're going to record some podcasts. I hope that we record like an episode before and after the conference itself. So you get to hear what we're up to and then our reactions to it. And uh, I have a lot of... uh, it's, It's going to be pretty exciting. That's October 21st. You should be in Seattle if you're a Freemason. And if you're not a Freemason and you're in Seattle and you just want to like meet up and nerd out over some beer or some freaky occult crap, then let me know. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Arnamancy on Twitter. You guys know that. And I'd love to, I'd love to meet some of our listeners. I'm recording this segment the morning after the uh, Twin Peaks finale for season three twin peaks the return what a mind trip there's a lot of stuff to there's a lot of stuff to look at in these in this season um it was 18 episodes long almost every episode contained uh elements that you could consider like supernatural or paranormal or just fucking weird or whatever you want to say it was totally david lynch at his best you had these you know long sort of uncomfortable periods where you're just staring at a road or staring at two people in silence, which, uh, which really, I mean, I, I appreciated that because immediately I was like, Oh weird. That's kind of how real life is. You spend a lot of time just sort of sitting there and the supernatural. So the supernatural elements in twin peaks, uh, I kind of, you know, when you watch the original series, they aren't necessarily always the driving force of the series, but they're always there in the background. And, um, in the return in this, in season three, they were absolutely a driving force. Like it became apparent at some point that Cooper, even though he ended up being trapped as Dougie for the majority of the series was, was a man at the mission. He had something important to do. Um, and it ended up all happening very, very quickly because when he was stuck as Dougie, he could barely operate, uh, even though he, ended up gathering all the resources he needed to finish his mission or to, to move forward on his mission. Yeah. Dougie was super frustrating. I got really tired of him, but these last several episodes that were Cooper and then perhaps Richard were, um, were something else. So my feelings, I liked it. I liked how one of the things I really liked about this whole, uh, season was that the mythology of Twin Peaks was being explained and expanded and uh, and really built on so you could kind of get a, an idea of what the interaction was between like the the White Lodge and Black Lodge and the waiting room and the real world. You know, they, they talked about sort of the nature of some of the entities or you got to see certain entities like the, like the ghost hobos or woodsmen or whatever we're supposed to call them. Um, and how they operated and what they were doing, you know, like there's, there was a lot of exposition, which even though it was rarely spelled out, 
still um, helped explain a lot of stuff that's going on in Twin Peaks. Um, you know, for instance, you have the the conversation about the tulpas and the revelation that the uh, gray-haired Diane uh, was a construct just like Dougie or the explanation of Judy. Now, I'm sort of suspicious of both of those. Both of those came from Gordon. They might not have been true. They might not have been right. I, uh, we don't really know. I read the Rolling Stone recap of the last two episodes, and uh, Rolling Stone, the author of the Rolling Stone recap, seems to think that Judy is the entity possessing Sarah Palmer. I don't know where the heck that idea came from. I don't know that we've seen Judy. I do think that Cooper and Diane are in a different world again, where perhaps Cooper is Richard. I'm really confused. The last episode's very confusing. It's going to take days, weeks, years to figure out. You know, uh, apparently Mark Frost is releasing a new book, and hopefully that'll have some clues in it. I realize throughout this that I really need to go back and rewatch Fire Walk with me. I, I think I've only seen it once or twice, and the, the last time I saw it was probably 15 years ago. So there's a lot to figure out. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about this is that David Lynch didn't provide us with like a storybook ending. You know, we're dealing with the intersection of, of, of worlds here, and there are obviously creatures and entities far stronger or more capable than humans who probably have an easier time dealing with like the funny time jumps and talking backwards and all that kind of crap. Uh, it, and it's an ongoing battle. You know, we, we've just been, we've just glimpsed certain scenes into this battle. And part of it, I think, has to do with how David Lynch kind of views reality. Uh, David Lynch's approach to the world. Um, it's got to be pretty well informed or at least influenced by his uh, interest in transcendental meditation. I think you've seen over and over and over again that he, we, you know, people like to have things wrapped up in a neat packages. We like to have neat stories, but when you pay attention to how the world works, it's it's very rarely that way. You know, you, uh, I, I, I know a lot of folks are able to sort of like put bookends on chapters of their lives. Like even I do that when I look back through my life, I, I look at various periods and I'm like, oh yeah, that was a chapter. It was a really crappy one, or that was a chapter where I learned a lot or, but, but it's not, uh, it's never that clean. It's never that clean. You'll have, you know, uh, Cooper, Agent Cooper struggles. He failed at the end of season one, right? Or season two, where he went into the black lodge or into the waiting room and acted out of the wrong emotions and ended up being trapped there while evil Cooper escaped into this world. And then Cooper and the one-armed man had like 25 years of sitting in the waiting room, just like that Fugazi song. Uh, 25 years of sitting in that room and coming up with this new plan. The whole time, like Cooper's just the the impression you really get is like he's just powerless the whole time like he can see sometimes all the shit that evil cooper is doing but he can't do anything to stop it um so i loved it i really loved the ending i loved how ambiguous it was i loved how even though you got these little moments of triumph like uh when freddy the dude with the magic hand beats bob to a pulp uh that was awesome but then you have it's a weird thing right after it where Cooper goes back in time and tries to save Laura Palmer. Uh, 
and did that happen i it, who knows if that happened is there more than one timeline now is there that's where it started to get confusing that's the sort of thing that would have to be fleshed out in future twin peak stuff because we entered into an an area of stuff that we just hadn't seen before there's you know there's always been sort of hints of time acting funny um both in the uh the lodge spirits doing their backwards talking the weird uh time skipping and time jumping things when when characters were nearing like those portals and vortexes and stuff so we've always known that there was weird time stuff going on but this is the first time that we've seen like outright time travel and that is that just opens up a whole new world of possibilities uh i mean now maybe we're seeing a place where Agent Cooper, in an attempt to fix things, has created like an alternate dimension or an alternate timeline where, where Laura Palmer is um, Carrie Page or whatever Laura Palmer's name was in the last episode, and Dale Cooper is Richard What's His Face, and and now they have to go on a whole new adventure where uh, why are the why are the people who live in the Palmer house why do they have the names of lodge spirits are they did did Cooper's actions destroy part of the black lodge and are those people like stuck in real world now Ah, who even knows i mean what year is it i don't know how much more rambling on i should do here i feel like i got onto this review right or i guess it's a reaction i don't know what you call these sorts of uh podcast things but i really wanted to offer some sort of new insight but here's something to think about. When Mike slash Philip Gerard slash the one-armed man meets Cooper in uh, in the darkness, I loved that. Did you guys get a, like a thrill out of that? I don't know. If you watch the show on Hulu, Hulu always has this little bit at the beginning where they're like, you know, Twin Peaks on every week at 9 p.m. or something. But the scene that they show, the video they show, is Cooper stepping out of the darkness. So there's just like a little bit of light on him. And, um, and that, that was, you know, throughout the entire series that it didn't show up again until like that part, Cooper going into the dark room, stepping into the light, meeting Phil Gerard. I'm going to call him Mike. I like calling him Mike. So, so Cooper and Mike meeting and Mike reciting the fire walk with me poem. And then they go to see Philip Jeffries. Now at this point, you can already tell that things are starting to go wrong for the Black Lodge characters, right? After Cooper and Mike uh, ascend the stairs to go out into the the spooky motel. We need better names for these things. They go out into the spooky motel, but then you see one of the Black Lodge characters, the long nosed dude, like in a in a panic, like running down the stairs. Like they know something screwed up. They know that they've lost. They know that that Bob has been destroyed. That that uh, Cooper's doppelganger has been stopped by Lucy good job lucy by the way congratulations and they know that something something different is there's there are new new rules going on so cooper and mike going to see philip jeffries uh who's a teapot now and not david bowie so uh which is sad but i wish we could have gotten david bowie in this but uh i mean if you want to talk about the work of a magician like david bowie's exit from our world was you, you know, with the album Black Star and all of that crap going on, that's a that's a whole nother podcast. So Philip Jeffries, the teapot, shows Mike and Cooper 
the Owl Cave glyph, which is the funny little Twin Peaks uh, sigil that has the, the diamond with um, two little uh, hats on either side. And uh, the teapot glyph uh, morphs into the letter eight with like a funny little ball on it, which then rotates. So you get to see two different eights, which is obviously a Back to the Future reference, right? 88 is 88 miles an hour, which is how fast you have to go to travel through time in the DeLorean. Because right after that, Cooper travels through time. I'm looking forward to... <laughs> that's that's a joke, by the way. I mean, it's funny. It does it does make me think that there are clever references. I, there are clever references hidden in Twe- Twin Peaks sometimes, which might not be to Twin Peaks itself, but to other pop culture references. My favorite of which, which I'm certain, I'm certain is is deliberate. At the end of Audrey's dance, when Audrey's dance is interrupted in episode 16, it's two guys who like get into a brawl, and one of them yells, "Maurice, that's my wife," or something like that, and that is totally a northern exposure reference you can go back and watch the first couple episodes of northern exposure and you'll see you know the like one of the main subplots in northern exposure is um maurice and what's his face arguing over uh the blonde girl shelly or shelby so that and and at the time northern exposure was sort of looked at as kind of ripping off some stuff from twin peaks you know taking sort of the the soap opera aspect and missing mixing it with like quirky supernatural elements um so i liked that i thought I, right away i was like oh northern exposure but who, who knows that, that pop culture references i i'm pretty sure that this isn't an indication that northern exposure twin peaks and back to the future all take place in the same universe okay i don't like my solo episodes to be super long and this is already the second segment of a solo episode so I'm going to sign off. I'm going to say if you haven't watched Twin Peaks and you just listened to all of this, it was probably very confusing. I would encourage you to watch all of it. Uh, remember, it's it's the brainchild of, of uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost. So it's not going to be what you expect. It's going to keep you on your toes. And you'll if you're doing it right, you're going to end up with more questions than answers, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just roll with it. Um, and aside from that, you know, you can you can find us on Stitcher and iTunes. We're Mile Chemical Bromance. You can find us on the web at milechemicalbromance.com. We would love to get some reviews, so please review us on iTunes or I think Stitcher allows reviews. I don't know. iTunes does for sure. Tell your friends about us, especially your weird friends. If you know anybody who's involved in the brewing industry or the winemaking industry or the liquor industry or heck, even the bar industry, and they also have an interest in the occult or the supernatural and they want to come talk with us or host us or something and um, talk about weird stuff and, uh, and hooch, please get them in touch with us. We would love that. Uh, I'm Eric Arneson and you can find me on Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is Arnemancy, A-R-N-E-M-A-N-C-Y, um, where I tweet about uh, history and the occult and mysticism and all of that fun stuff. Um, thanks for listening. 
Stay groovy. I'm not going to do that. 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 I